Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your kindness to us. I thank you for our, the time we spent in Carnegie, those of us who went, and how you kept us safe and preserved us even in the heat of the day and uh, preserving us from critters and um, just all kinds of things. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunities you gave us. I pray for especially Cortland and Brooklyn who who were there listening. I pray that you work in our, will continue to work in their hearts. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that we got to be a part of that as well as others, Lord. But I ask you to be with us this morning as we uh, look at Montanism and that you would guide us and help us and that we would be encouraged, enriched, we would be um, pre- uh, prepared and uh, be in, uh, helped in many, many different ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm running on about 75% because I'm left part of me down in Carnegie, mostly perspiration. and <laughs> So, um, so we're, at, we're at the heresy zone. Is it time to start yet? That fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man, a dimension as vast as space and timeless as infinity, the middle ground between light and shadow, between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It's also an area we call the heresy zone. So our aims, so I've turned these around a little bit and, and tightened them up some, but there's three I've got mentioned now, are ultimately that we will... Uh, that we are able to be aware, keep stable, and grow. So you remember 2 Peter 3, Paul, uh, Peter talks about how there are those who are unstable people who twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. And then Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So that's our ultimate goal here, our aim. And toward that end, we'll become familiar with aspects of our early history by understanding several of the major heretical movements and moments for the first five centuries and reflect on our own day and place in history. Oh, I had four of these, that's right. And then be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it's important. So these are our aims. I just put them in different orders this time. Just to see if you're awake. So we talked about what heresy is and how to think about it. We've talked about the Ebionites, Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism. I probably should have taken last week's class and made it two, two classes, but didn't do that. That was a bad call on my part. Um, and there's more we could talk about about Gnosticism. Um, but I, like I said, all of these flow together uh, over a period of time, and many, many of these flow together in many ways. And so whatever we say about some of the other heresies actually deal with Gnosticism too. Today we're going to talk about Montanism, we'll talk about Arianism, Modalism, Manichaeanism, Donatists, Nestorianism, and Pelagianism. Those are where we're going to go. So delineations today, we'll talk about Montanism, what, uh, lay out some ground rules again, define Montanism, discuss modern Montanist signs, deliberate on biblical responses. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm on about three-fourths, three-fifths. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So remember, most of, the modern, most of the various heresies are trying to answer or answering the Lord, our Lord's question, who do you say that I am, that will shape how they view many other topics. Uh, but not all of the heresies are doing that. 
some, like Montanism, as you'll get as we get into Montanism, some will see weaknesses in the church that, and they are, uh, and, uh, and what they're trying to do um, in their attempt to establish or reclaim the church to make it purer again, either to reestablish a purer church or to reclaim the church and make it pure again, are taking steps to tighten things up, so to speak, and that's when, uh, and you'll see where. Uh, You'll hear a lot of this. It'll actually sound very, very contemporary and, and just hugely contemporary. But they saw a weakness, they went at it, and the weakness and their remedy becomes the issue. So it's taking something okay and then uh, overcompensating and making it and elevating it out of context or out of it what it should be in its broader context. And thus, that becomes the heretical part. And you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. So Montanism is a little bit different than the other heresies, okay? That's what I'm trying to get across. So Montanus is the head, or is the starter of Montanism. Around the middle of the second century, he was a Christian convert from the Phrygian region. So this is modern-day Turkey right here. I was stationed right here, right down here. I was baptized right down there in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, This is modern-day Turkey. There's Istanbul. Uh, Way over here is the... uh, what would be Ephesus and all of that, and then Greece is over there and on and on. So this is modern Turkey. This is Phrygia. It's kind of in the middle. So he was from Phrygia, the Phrygia, Phrygian region, and it's possible that this is the region that uh, the legendary King Midas came from. So just to let you know, maybe if that helps you to kind of put it in your head a little bit. Okay, and this is where he was at. The story is that he was, uh, he was actually the son of a bishop of the church there, and his own father actually excommunicated him at some point. So that was really interesting. That's just a rumor or, or whatever. But anyways, Montanus and two women named Prissa and Maximilla announced themselves as prophets. On the basis of the Gospel of John, they held that the last and the highest stage of revelation had, had been reached and the age of the paraclete, the parakletos, the helper, the comforter, the spirit, that the age of the spirit had come, and the paraclete spoke through Montanus now that the end of the world was at hand. And so the revelations given through Montanus were mainly concerned with those things in which it seemed that the scriptures were not sufficiently ascetic at. That they were, you know, understand asceticism, the idea of, you know, extreme fasting and, and poverty and all those things, right? And so, even seeing that maybe, and this is what Louis Burkhoff says in his History of Christian Doctrine, seeing that the Scripture itself may have been lacking because it didn't have a sufficient asceticism, they're going to fix things. And so the mo- most essential element in Montanism was its legalistic asceticism. So just looking at Burkhoff's description of them, what, what are some things that stick out to you that could be problematic. Yeah, self-declared prophet status, so there's no outside affirmation to that necessarily, right? Okay, that's good. What else? Yes, the world is about to end and they have it all, right? You've got to listen to them. So, Scripture's not sufficient, okay? Very good. So you're already picking up some of those things, all right? Um, 
So Montanism was technically, on, on the big issues and who Christ was, is and all those things, was technically an orthodox movement that was attempting to fix what they saw as lacking in the church. Okay? Some of it was asceticism, you know, that the church was not strident enough and, and is becoming too worldly, and this is by the second century, and that uh, we need to tighten this up a little bit, okay? Um, also, since this is another part that's lacking or what they see now beginning to lack, since this is the age of the paraclete, the spirit, then this age should have an abundance of the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. One of the things that they would do is they would go back to the book of Acts and they would say, well, look, there are all these healings at the beginning of Acts. And so there's no healings now. We must be at fault. We're not spiritual enough. We, that, that should be happening always, right? So... So we're going to make this happen or we're going to, you know, we believe the Spirit has come and now we're going to have these miracles and we're going to have all of these spiritual gifts and we're going to have especially prophecy. But that was one of the things where they felt there was a lack and they wanted to tighten that up. So they're attempting to fix the church um, and going in this direction. Montes, Prissa, and Maximilla were the last prophets and so they were the mouthpieces of the paraclete. This is what... Bruce Shelley says in his Church History in Plain Language, which I've referred to before. That's a great church history book. If you want a church history book, that is a good place to begin. Okay? Uh, Bruce Shelley. Uh, I'm quoting him here. In the name of the Spirit, Montanus denied that God's decisive and normative revelation had occurred in Jesus Christ. Okay? There's where they go, begin to move off the turf where they're supposed to be. You need to have the Spirit. That's more important. You got Jesus that gets you in, but now you've got to have the Spirit. You've got to have the Spirit stuff, and you've got to have all these other things, because this is the age of the Spirit. Does that make sense? All right. Good. Any questions? This is going to be a really short class if we don't get engaged here, okay? I'm just going to tell you. So any questions about this? Yes. 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 Yeah, he was overtly saying those things. He was, uh, from everything we know, that was what he was emphasizing. They didn't have Twitter. How could they have done that? Well, whatever they did, they had a great marketing scheme, apparently. Yes. Um, I mean, it... So, you know, rumor... When I was in the military, I used to always joke that rumor was the fastest way to get information out because if you use the official channels... It takes weeks for things to get out. But rumor, phew, done within a minute, right? So maybe something like that, you know, I don't know. But they, that was, but it did pick up steam very, very quick, and it lasted quite a while. Yeah, they claim to do those things, but primarily, like I said, their emphasis was mostly on prophecy. And, and, and so put yourself in a context where... Um, You've just come out of a plague. Remember, the plague of 160 AD. We talked about this in church history class some years back. The plague of 160. I mean, people are dead everywhere. The end has come. The sky is falling. Jesus is coming back. Listen to me. I'll tell you how to take care of it, right? So dealing with the furor and fear of the moment, right? they, get, they get traction quick. Maybe they're not healing pe people necessarily, but they're definitely doing these other things, specifically prophesying, and people are listening to them because they're looking around. It's kind of like, 
It's kind of like the newest book on the Revelation, how that's proof that Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever is the Antichrist. And here's all the proof, you know, because something happens and then they make it look that way. And so it's that same kind of thing. Yes, always the final prophets. Yes, we're it. We're the big guys. Yes. Were you going to ask something, Kelly? That was, yes. Well, you got, yeah, so the church is fairly decentralized. Most people don't realize that, but it's fairly decentralized. You don't have any kind of a big network communication system, like, except for the postal system or whatever. And so, uh, and then traveling to visit each other. And so it takes a long time. It's just like the Titanic. You can turn the Titanic, but it takes a lot of pressure and a long push, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah, all of those things, yes. Good question. Is anybody else on, on this? All right, and so, um, still staying with Burkhoff here. Moreover, they, re- so now I'm back to Burkhoff here. Moreover, they reveal the tendency to exalt the special charisms or gifts in the church at the expense of the regular offices and officers. So they actually bypassed the, the, the elders and bishops of the churches and because they were the prophets, okay? It's like one time I was at a, this is really funny that you'll love this. I was at a tent revival meeting that I had set up in Key Largo, Florida. I did. I set up a tent revival meeting. It was great. It wasn't great, but it felt great at the moment. And so this woman pulls up in this big limo and she hands me her business card. She's the Apostle Josephina, something or other, right? Just a self-promoted deal. She was bypassing, you know, any kind of official recognition at all. Any kind of, you know, anything that would... And she was self-appointed. And when I asked her about it, because I'm very, I'm very skeptical of a lot of those things. But when I asked her, how did you become an apostle? Well, the Lord made me an apostle. He told me. And it's very similar to Montanus. Montanus. Okay. So bypassing uh, the church leadership, um, Montanism felt that, uh, Monta, uh, uh, the Montanists felt that the church was becoming too worldly because of the influx of new converts. Remember, as we talked about before, that the two big seasons when the church grew before Constantine were at, in the midst of those big pandemics, okay? Because the church, the Christians stayed and cared for those who were dying, those who were sick, those who were orphaned, right? And those were the two big spikes that we know of in church history when the church grew. So there's this huge influx in the middle of second century, in the middle of third century, the two big pandemics when the church just exploded in size, okay? Well, when you have a lot of pagans coming in the church door, you know, then there's all kinds of people coming in with presuppositions that they've brought from their background and they don't understand why do we... Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And, and it just feels right to do it this way in the name of Jesus and all those things. And so, so there's something going on there. There's no, no denying that. Um, but they're going to fix that. So they felt like the church had become too, too worldly, too lax because of the influx of new converts. And so they tried to build into the system strong ascetic rules and strong moral requirements. For example, celibacy. You married once at the most, and if your spouse dies, you can never remarry again, period. 
right? And then marriage is not necessarily the biggest thing. It'd be better to be single because Jesus is coming back. Anybody know anything about the Millerites in the 1840s? Yeah, went up the mountain, right? Because Jesus was coming back because that particular prophet said that he's coming back to this mountain on this date in 1843 or whatever it was. And people were selling all their property, um, those kinds of things. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, so all that stuff was happening. And then guess what? Big letdown came. It didn't happen. That's right. Okay. And so same kind of thing. So don't, but this one is don't get married. Mostly it's don't get married because Jesus is coming back in the next 26 hours and 13 seconds or something like that. Right. And so there were also more intense form, intense forms of fasting, um, Christianity at that time had taken over a Jewish form of fasting, which was two days a week. Uh, I don't remember the two days of Jewish fasting, but Christian fasting was usually Wednesday and Wednesday and Saturday, I believe it's what the two days were. And so the more rigid would be more strident forms of fasting, longer periods of fasting. You need to abstain because you've got to get right with Jesus and all those things. Uh, or, or maybe it was more, you need to be fasting more stridently so that way you can get the Holy Spirit. That would actually probably be very much more uh, like it. Uh, rigid moral disciplines, uh, their message and their moral rigor attracted, even attracted a theologian who was converted to Montanism, Tertullian. We quote Tertullian quite a bit, but he was so persuaded because he also, he already, he was already grumpy. If you read anything from Tertullian, he was already grumpy. Everything's going to Hades in a handbasket, right? The church is, is lost already, is already shot to pieces. And then comes Montanism, and he's like, yeah, I agree with that. And so he's persuaded, and he falls in with them. So he's known as a Montanist. Anyways, so there's some more about their background. Any questions? Any more questions on that? Yes. Oh, uh, voluntary poverty? Um, that I don't know for certain. I'm sure that's probably the case, something like that. Maybe not quite that extreme, but yeah. Well, that's interesting too, yes. The prophet would receive the prophet. That was a dad joke, y'all. We were telling dad jokes while we were in Carnegie and everybody was groaning except me. Yes, yes. Yeah, very pharisaical. But if you know church history, what else does this begin to sound like is coming? It's coming in the next uh, several centuries. What does it start, sound like that, that will be coming and becoming actually part of the official church? Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. Yes. Yeah, right, 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 right. So John brought up the other day about monasticism. You can already see where the extreme monasticism that will come later already has some, some, um, some runner roots back to here, for example, okay? Um, so what else? Anybody else? Other questions? They had the two. They had the three prophets. 
Well, Jesus is coming back. It just, I, somehow the mantle went on, but there were no longer any big famous people. But yeah, but the mantle was passed on in some way. Because it, it, Montanism shows up, keeps showing up till about the 5th century. So it took some deep roots and it shows up till about the 5th century. And you always wonder, wait, if they were talking that Jesus is going to come any minute, and that, I mean, they're, they're like, like, we're talking about in our lifetime, and he doesn't, you would think the air would go out of their tires, Right? Well, it happens all the time. When was the last time you saw... I mean, when did Hal Lindsey put out his books? 1960s, 1970s. Jesus is right around the corner. He's coming anytime soon. People bought him up by the caseloads. And then comes, you know, we could just start adding names. Everybody. The blood moon rising. Everything. Everybody. It's talking about, here are all the signs in place. And then I just go, why are Christians buying these things? With three generations in my lifetime, about three generations, we've been told the same thing over and over again, and we're still buying this stuff up. It's the same kind of thing. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yes. Yes, yeah. And the, and the Millerites became a denomination that's out now that's very strident and it's ascetic, almost ascetic approach as well as its prepper approach and other things. So very good. Okay, so you ready to move on? Um, this is from, uh, again, from Bruce Shelley from his book uh, Church History in Plain Language. Montanus' spiritu- super-spirituality went too far. When, Montanists, when the Montanists insisted that opposition to the new prophecy was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, many churches split over the question. There you're now at the very root concept of heresy, hieresis. What does hieresis or heresy actually mean at its very basic meaning? Anybody remember? Yeah, division splitting, party, sectarian, right? So here's what happens. Not content, you know, they're part of creating splits over personalities and so forth, and over these particular these particular things other than but you know, ignoring the rest. Okay. Um, they began to split over the question. Montanus's doctrine of the new age of the spirit suggested suggested that the Old Testament period was past and that the Christian period centered in Jesus had ended. And so the prophet claimed the right to push Christ and the apostolic message into the background and the fresh music of the Spirit could, be, could override important notes of the Christian gospel. Christ was no longer central. In the name of the Spirit, Montanus denied that God's decisive and normative revelation occurred in Jesus Christ. It is a wild west. That's right. So what does this begin to sound like to you? Yes, there's no king in Israel but man did what was right in his own eyes. Okay? Yes. No, that was that went clear back to uh, Marcion. That was earlier. So interesting how that kind of begins to feed in. But that would have the same impact, right? But then notice the next part, that the Christian period is over too. 
right? So no longer is there an emphasis on what then? Yeah, necessarily Christ and the gospel, right? So it's all about this. It's all about the Spirit. Does any of that sound familiar? Where having the Spirit, having the signs of the Spirit, having evidences that you have the Spirit trumps the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I heard you say it, but we won't, we won't let anybody hear it recorded. Okay, yes. No, it's great. You're right. Pentecostalism is a good example. Not all, mind you. There are some Pentecostals who see what they've done and are trying to back, uh, and trying to, to back up Pentecostalism to be very orthodox. Simon Chan from, um, from uh, Singapore is an Assembly of God theologian who is, he's just, you know, the stuff that I read from him is great. He's not Francis Chan, Simon Chan. I've never read anything from Francis Chan. So Simon Chan, you know, Chans are like Joneses. Huh? Okay. Chan. Chan for family name is like Joneses almost, you know, so. Uh, but anyways, so there's, there are some pushing, pushing back, which is good. They see the abuse that it brought, that it brings, okay? But, it is in, but even in churches that are not, quote, charismatic, end of quote, this can happen too. Can you think about ways in which that happens? It's all about the Spirit and very little or nothing about Jesus, really. Especially when it's tied to things like asceticism, tighter morality. Anybody? Anybody brave enough to say it? Okay. Maybe a little edgy Wesleyanism there. You know, with the second blessing and all of that, and that overemphasis on the second blessing. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Good job, Bob. Yeah, that's exactly right. That top part right there, that if you oppose them, then you are actually blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they're the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. To oppose them then is to oppose the Holy Spirit. Right? And... I mean, you go look at uh, Victor Paul Warewell from the Way International or, or any of these other old cults that I grew up with in the 70s. Anyways, they were always that way. You can never question them. By the way, that should always be a red flag that you can never question the leaders. That should be a red flag. Wherever you are, I don't care what church you're in. That should be a red flag. Okay, there is some trust issues. I mean, there's some trust things that you need to have. But at the same time, you know, you should be able to ask questions and say, oh, I don't understand that. How does that fit with Scripture? And so forth. And that should be good. And if you hear people say, if you hear the leaders say, you hear others say, you can't question me. Or I, I'm the voice of God, right? Then you've got problems or something like that. All right, so what was not the problem or trouble with Montanism? Anybody can think about what was not the problem or trouble with Montanism? Yeah, I mean, it's not a problem thinking about Christ returning soon. He never promised He was going to come back in our lifetime, but we live always with the imminency of His return. He could, could come back. There's a difference between He will and He could. And the New Testament is all about He could, never says He will come back in our lifetime, right? And it was the liberals that actually made hay out of that, that actually said, oh, the New Testament says that Jesus will come back in their lifetime, and it was wrong there. Well, where else is the New Testament wrong? And so that kind of a um, end times thinking that infected most of the conservative churches uh, in the 1800s and 1900s 
open the door wide open for liberalism to actually sneak its way in and take over. So it's always he could come, not that he necessarily will come. Right, right, right. It's hard to actually hold that and keep it in context and where it actually fits so that it doesn't take on a life of its own, which is obviously is what has happened, right? So, where else would Montanism not have a, be, would not be a problem or not be a trouble? I mean, as I said, they were actually within, nobody ever charged them with being outright uh, heretics in the same vein as the Gnostics and things like that. It was it was the, had to do with their overemphasis on the Spirit speaking to them specifically and so forth, okay? So they, they held to a basic orthodoxy. So that would not be a problem, right? I love looking at the Montanists because they're the one exception to the rule that I've given you that everybody's trying to answer the question, how do, who do people say that I am, you know, and they're the ones saying, oh, we agree with all that. But it's this other stuff. That's where they begin to go. So what were the troubles of Montanism? Yeah, very good. Nice job, Mike. I'm so glad that somebody is paying attention. Yes. But in the area of authority and authoritarianism, what would be the problem there? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, 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 right, right, okay, so that would be a good example, I mean, you see that showing up, I mean, I always lightly say, think about the Pope, I mean, in some ways, the Pope is almost there in his position, right, he can be, actually, he can actually be restrained by the Cardinal's but there's the way people treat him, it's almost as if he's the authority. He's the vicar of Christ, the very voice of Christ, the very voice of the Paracletos. And so uh, there's an example. Sometimes the way you hear some Reformed folks use the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's almost like we took the Confession of Faith and make it the voice of God. Right? So we can, we can all fall into that trap into some sense. Right? Okay, so... Uh, uh, how about their heavy dependence on ecstatic experiences, right? Needing to have these experiences. This is how you know that we've got the Spirit and so forth. Does that sound, I mean, any of that sound familiar by any chance, by the way? Yeah, it could be some of that, okay? Yeah, the great, the great, the great manipulation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And also the centrality of the spirit. 
over and above Jesus. Okay? That, I mean, it's always my concern is that when I start hearing people say, um, you know, you, you say, well, somebody asks, somebody will inevitably ask, and they have before, well, is heritage a spirit-filled church? I hope so, because if not, we're all going to hell. Right? But I know what they mean, and so it's their overemphasis and dependence on ecstatic experiences, and then it's almost, I mean, and, and, and I don't know if you've had this, this moment, but there's, um, here's how you know who a Christian is. Did they speak in tongues? Here's how you know who a Christian is, huh? Yeah, did they lay hands on you? So it's, so it's this pushing Jesus to the side and making the Spirit, as they interpret the Spirit's involvement, making it central rather than the cross, rather than Christ. Remember, we talked about this the other day. Uh, Martin Luther's rule of thumb, uh, crux obat omnia, the cross is the, is the uh, test of all things. How they deal with the cross, if they, if they sideline it or if they say, well, that's just over here or it's not important, then you have a problem. It's a good test where they put the cross, okay? Yes? Right, right, right. Yeah. I think that's the, the key is having to have something else other than, right? I think that's the key. Right. Right. Yes, right. That's exactly right. So here's how I would, here's how I would put that. I'm thinking about these two right here specifically. Here's how I'd put it. We all have different experiences. I mean, I can tell you some experiences I've had that were just unexplainable to me, Okay. But when I make them the experience you have to have, they become normative. Now we have a problem. I mean, I, the Holy Spirit is alive and well, and, and He does, I think He kicks us in the tush on occasion and, and maybe shoves us down a hallway on occasion. But to make that the normative experience or to make it your authority or to make it um, uh, the expectation for others or if that motion contradicts scripture moose brought this example up last last week i think it was if it contradicts scripture oh god told me to divorce my wife and marry my secretary i mean then and making that the authority now we've moved into that realm does that make sense it's not that we're denying that people have experiences we should never deny them if somebody says to you well i just had this experience well praise the lord (laughs) that's all i can say yes jane Spirit of discernment. Run, run, flee. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, when somebody does that, I mean, that's, that's that authoritarianism, going back to authoritarianism. We had a woman in a previous church, I won't tell you what church, where I was at, where I was the pastor. I found out later what she was doing. She was going to all the homeschool moms. And she was telling them how they were going, how they were going to destroy their children because they didn't use the curriculum she knew they should have. You remember this, Jerry? Yeah. No, no. We don't remember this. We we refuse to remember this moment. But 
But it was, it was, I mean, I found out later. It was horrifying. It's bad. I mean, parenting is guilt, guilt ridden enough. And then to have a woman come up to you whose kids are all grown and she's got the voice of God and she tells you, this is the way, this is the curriculum you must use. I mean, run, flee. <laughs> no. But, but if she had, that would, have, that would have been the icing on the cake. Yes. Very good. She missed out on an opportunity. But let me tell you about my, my new business. Amway. Sorry. Yes. Who said my name? Yeah, to some extent, I mean, if you're, if you're dependent upon having, so uh, here's an example. So George Whitfield, yeah, yeah. So George Whitfield began this and then the Wesleys picked it up and then Whitfield later repented of this. But he had, he, but he was known for these, um, what did he call them? He was known for, um, I can't remember what he called them, but they were basically intuitions and he equated them with the Holy Spirit. And so he did made some cho- choices and decisions in all of his camp meetings and everything that had problems, that began to have problems. Well, the Wesleys picked up the same thing. Whitfield, by the way, was the reformed guy out of the Wesleyanism, and then there was John and Charles. Um, and so Whitfield finally, about uh, 20 years into it, finally began to back up and went, uh, you know what? That's not right. But he, that was that dependence. He had a huge dependence on that. And I think it's the dependence thing. You know, it's a big deal. It's one thing, I think, you know, God does do interesting things. And as, as C.S. Lewis would have it in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he's not a safe lion, you know. All right, so. Yes, Moose. Yeah, yeah, yep. Sure. Yes. Right, 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 right. God helps those who help themselves. I know it's in there somewhere. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what Neil was talking about earlier. That's where the dependence needs to be is on Jesus and the ordinary means of grace, right? Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship, love within the fellowship. Those things are where you lean on. The other things, if they do... if something if you have an experience that's something different you know that's beyond that but but it's whatever that experience does it's if it doesn't lead you along with scripture word sacraments prayer right if that experience leads you to pull away like like montanus and split churches and those things that becomes hugely problematic right uh, also, one of their other troubles, again, is the legalism, the legalistic moralism and judgmentalism, looking down on others because they didn't have the Spirit like we do. Okay? All right, anything else on this?
Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, all, and always missing out. So when I do new members class, I always do a class on the Holy Spirit and go through Scripture on the Holy Spirit. And my ending is this, is that you have everything you need. The next time in the normal, ordinary Christian life, there's always low points. There's flat places. And so somebody will inevitably saddle up next to you and tell you the reason why you're at that low place is because you don't have everything you need. If you buy our product, if you read my book, if you come to this place, you'll get the things that you need, the stuff that you feel is missing. And so there's always that push. You just go, I mean, just go, I'm not faulting Mardell. They're just trying to make a buck, right? But just go to Mardell and just walk through the books and see how many of the books actually cater towards, here's what's lacking in your life and we're going to fix it. Did anybody ever watch, I think it was, uh, I think it was on OETA or something. It was really funny. It was a, it was a, a show on how these cheesy commercials sell their product. Because first thing they do is they, they, they sell you that you have a need. Have you ever felt that scratch, that itch in the middle of your back that you could never get to? Oh, it just drives you crazy. Well, we have the answer. The uh, Acme Wally Coyote Back Scratcher. And only we have that product. And if you buy it, then you can finally be self-fulfilled and reach Maslow's hierarchy of, top of his hierarchy of needs, self-actualization, right? That's how they sell it. And it's funny because Christians... If you, so I would encourage, that would be fun to do, actually just, uh, not fun, fun, but it'd be encouraging or helpful if you go through, just go through a Christian bookstore and see how many books actually lean in that direction of you're lacking and you need what I've got to get there. Oh yeah. Thank you. That's good. Yeah. Anybody else? I ask the same thing all the time in the modern eschatological movements that talk about him coming. I mean, there was a guy who was the head of a particular radio state show out of Iowa. Uh, who was a reformed guy who uh, was telling everybody Jesus is coming back on this date. And he danced around that verse to the right and the left and the front and back and he dozy doed and he's, you know, all the stuff around it. And it was like, dude, you can't miss that verse, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So to answer your question is, um, I mean, we, we all have blind spots. So all I can say is either it was just outright deception on their part or it was a big, huge blind spot. The Lord told me that there's someone out there who needs Jesus, or we need to do another verse. Yes. Just as I am with that. That one? (laughs) Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, because the whole altar call thing, for example, came out of the 1830 revivalism, 1830s revivalism. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah, Charles Finney. So it was the manufacturing the experience, right? He was all about manufacturing the experience and so forth. But it came, a lot of that came out of that era. And it was all about you need to have the experience, right? Yeah. How? Sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. You would think you think it would be on a decisive, and that's why it's always listed as one of the major heresies. But uh, in the day, it was fairly tolerated. I mean, Tertullian was never in full communion with, uh, with the church itself. He was always, uh, once he converted, Tertullian was in just with the Montanists and didn't get a lot of credit amongst the, the larger group of Christians because of his Montanism. But he still had people that listened to him because they were, they were grumpy like he was, you know, and wanted to, you know. Those kinds of things. But I, I agree, but then you put it, put it in the modern context, and it may not be quite the same, and this, maybe this is why, but when you have denominations hold denominations that lean this way, why are they not called heretics in the, in the capital H sense of the word? Um, I'm sorry? Yes, right, 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 right. And that's why you can't get rid of it, right? That's why it's still here, and that's why you can pick up pieces of all the pieces. Yeah. Right. Right. Sure, right. 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 Sure. Right. 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 So I think the, the crucial part, remember, crux probat omnia, the te- cross is the test of all things. That's where you always go, right, to, to look at those things uh, as a guy. I have had a sign. It's almost time. Awesome. Yes, Moose. Yeah, right. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And that there may be something malicious in there in some situations. In other situations, if you're if you're if your whole culture, so I'm thinking about a denominational culture, if your whole culture is emphasizing this over here, then sometimes by accident there's a neglect to this over here. I, I, I'm just telling you my my dealing with people. There's usually an, an accidental shift over. This becomes everything, and these other things get forgotten, right? So I hear, I'll, let me give you an example. So, when, like I said, when I do the new members class, I teach one class on the Holy Spirit. I cannot tell you how many Reformed people, people coming from Reformed churches, who go to the class, how many of them have said to me, I cannot wait till you get to the class on the Holy Spirit, because I, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Our church never talked about the Holy Spirit. So becoming so overemphasizing the, the doctrines of grace and forgetting to talk about who he who the spirit is and what he does, it's a slide of it's an accidental slide because there's nothing I can tell you there's nothing malicious in the intent. It's just a focusing too much on uh, over focusing on some things and thus you end up neglecting other things. So there's some of that. There are some who are malicious. I don't deny that. I know that personally. So yeah, yeah, right.